0: You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. On August 5th, 2010, tragedy struck the San Jose Gold and Copper Mine in Chile. And the mine had been in operation for over 100 years. But that day changed everything. Literally, part of the mountain broke loose, and it descended and trapped 33 miners 2,300 feet below the surface. If you want to get a visual, this is going to be bad because I don't have a visual, so I'm going to have to tell you. Make up your own visual. Uh, Two Empire State buildings stacked end-to-end is 2,300 feet, okay? So that's their two Empire State buildings down in... Um, a cave they were able to reach what is known in the industry then as a safe room okay so where so emergency supplies were kept when literally the dust settles they begin going to the air shafts that were cut in order for people to escape during these kind of circumstances and yet which's not uncommon in mining world um, the ladders weren't there um, they had just deteriorated over time and so there was no way for them No way for them to get out. By day 17, the supplies had been whittled down to the point where they were only eating one cookie each every third day. Now, meanwhile, above ground, rescue efforts began. The plans began as soon as um, the collapse happened. Um, And the rescuers knew the only way for survival for these, um, anyone inside the mine, would be for them to be able to drill a shaft from above ground, 2,300 feet below ground, and hit this small area, um, this small safe room. Um, I've done a good bit of background and research around this story, and they, the, the way the the way the research goes is that the first two drills missed, and um, they said that trying to hit that was more art, as much art as it was science. The, the third drill was given a name, the Hand of God. And that drill reached the safe room 2,300 feet. And then after analysis, it was like, how in the world could this, the the, the drill could not have bent around the things it it was supposed to bend around, right? I mean, it couldn't go through and it went around. It was a fascinating, um, there was a fascinating kind of study around that particular thing. But when that drill entered the safe room, um, some of the miners said their fear wasn't the, their prayer wasn't to be rescued. They thought that was too far of an ask. Their prayer was that they wouldn't be forgotten. So when the shaft enters that safe room, they began pounding on that with anything metal they had, which sent vibrations up to 2,300 feet and told the people that there was people alive. And when they extracted the bit out of the, out of the mine, attached on the end was a, a handwritten sign they had made, safe in the refuge, the 33." Safe in the refuge, the 33. Um, You may have watched the movie. There's a movie on this. It's called The 33. Um, At the time, it was estimated that a billion people tuned in for the rescue. I was one of those billion. I remember being just glued to the TV watching this. It would take 52 more days before the miners were rescued, before they could drill uh, something wide enough, a borehole wide enough, in order to extract all the miners. Um, But on day 17 is the day they knew they would be rescued. Um, There was a camp built outside of the mining area in in a safe zone, and they named that camp, camp Camp Esperanza. Now, some of you might know Spanish. I know three languages. I know college football, I know baseball, and I know English. And I'm not as great on the third as I am on the first two. But Esperanza in Spanish means hope. And then one of the families, um, his wife gave birth while he was still trapped. And they named her Esperanza, hope. So what I want to do today, I'm going to do two particular things I hope to do anyway. Today I want to teach you two particular things. One to hang on to hope in forgotten places. And the second is to move toward the hope that's in front of you. That's my objective, okay? Now, before we get there, though, I have to circle back to two assertions that I made last week in this series. This is week two of a series for guests. This is week two in a series that I'm calling Hope in Empty Places, all right? So here was the assertions that you have to build on. This was from week one. Assertion number one is that empty is an illusion because God is an ever-present presence. Empty is an illusion because God is an ever-present presence. So in Genesis 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and what? Empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the first Two verses or so of scripture we learn that God precedes empty. In the beginning God created so God precedes empty. Second then is that God is present in empty. God is present with it. He preceded it and then the, his spirit the spirit hovered over the waters, right? And then he said, then he spoke into it and said let there be light and then light you know light fills, right? Turn the light on, fills the room. So God precedes empty. God's present and empty, and God creates full out of empty. And, it, and if, you just, if you just follow that logic out, that would mean then empty is an illusion. It might feel empty, might look empty, but it can't be empty because God precedes empty. He's present and empty, and He creates full out of empty. All right, here's assertion number two: Hope is not an emotion, but an anchor in the person of Jesus. So biblical hope, I taught you last week, is a confident expectation anchored in the person of Jesus. Yes, you will read times in scripture that hope is an emotion, but most references of hope is going to be about Jesus being our hope. So Hebrews 6, 6, 19 through 20 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hope is not an emotion. Hope is an anchor. Hope is an anchor in Christ. So the conclusion then for me is that hope can be learned, practiced, and passed. If hope is not an emotion, biblical hope. Then it can be learned, it can be practiced, and it can be passed. I know I need to learn more about hope. I need to practice hope more often. All right. So by, seven, by day 17, um, the, the miners were at the height of their forgotten state. They were out of food. Um, it was a desperate situation, and you can do some research, and it was really, it's, it's really cool to read about it. Um, but each time that I've... Um, well, when I wrote the book, and I wrote this chapter, and I've done a devotion for Ramsey Solutions around this several years ago, and now, here, in those three occasions... I have prayed that that day would be someone's day 17. So still, 52 days later until they were fully rescued. But on day 17 is when things changed. All right? So today, September 24th, 2023, at 1143, my prayer is today is your day 17. So empty is an illusion, hope is an anchor, and forgotten is is a delusion. Forgotten is a delusion. Satan can really mess with our minds and our identity when we find ourselves in forgotten places. He can derail your personhood, your identity, and your purpose if he can convince you that you have been forgotten. Can you identify with the emotions of being dismissed or overlooked or excluded? These are the kind of emotions when I'm talking about being forgotten. And just like I taught you last week, our emotions are real, but they're just not always true. And we're going to live on the ups and downs of emotions if we don't subject them to the truth. The truth being Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So here, here is a, uh, here's a definition, just, you know, Webster, of uh, delusion something that is falsely believed. That's a 1A definition. 1B is a persistent, false belief regarding the self or persons or objects outside of the self that is maintained despite indisputable evidence to the contrary. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. I'm hoping after I unpack this, you will see this as indisputable evidence that forgotten is a delusion. And the second definition is the act of tricking or deceiving someone, which is exactly what the enemy wants to do with all of us. He is a deceiver. His intent about making us feel lost and forgotten is a part of his plan of deception to derail our identity and to derail our purpose, all right? Um, uh, with God, to feel forgotten or overlooked or discarded or disregarded is to believe a lie and you can't make stable decisions from an unstable premise. Does that make sense to everybody? It, if you're going to make Good decisions. You have to come from a good and accurate premise. All right, here. Listen to Psalm 33, 13 through 22. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all. So that includes us. It sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the heart of all, who considers everything they do. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Great adjective there, right? Love's a pretty nebulous word, but boy, it clears up a little bit when we put unfailing in front of it. Unfailing love. To deliver them from death, empty, forgotten, and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope. One of the things I taught you last week is if you, have to, if you have to wait for an outcome to live in hope, you're going to miss a whole lot of hope. And when God speaks truth into something, that's when our hope can begin, not just on the outcome. Um, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. I've gone through plenty of seasons, um, documented seasons of being, uh, feeling forgotten, overlooked, disregarded, things like that. I remember one of the most vivid is when Gene and I and Annie moved here to Plant Gateway. We, we had moved from a place where people knew us. We spent 13 years in the same area. We had family. We had friends um, there. Uh, the church was well-known. Uh, so we moved here. We didn't know anybody. We didn't know anybody. And so... Um, We remember the first time someone actually called us by name. We were in the old Kroger in Spring Hill, which is now a Church of the City campus, and we were walking down an aisle, and someone said, Called our name, Charlie Gina. And I immediately called for cleanup on aisle five. (laughs) It, It was staggering to be recognized and called by name. We had gone through a season there where no one knew who we are. And when the church planners ask me what's the hardest part about planning a church, one of the things I tell them is going through a season of not being known, not being known. So let's talk about Moses in particular today. And I know that if you've been around um, church or Christianity for any length of time, Moses is an iconic character, right? He's bigger than life. Um, and yet we we learn the character of God through Moses' interactions, all right? And so here's going to be, here's what I have found pretty particular about the documentation of Moses' story. The first 40 years of Moses' life is documented in 10 verses, 10. And he was burnt, born under a murderous law where Pharaoh was having all male children killed. But yet, God spares Moses, and Moses' mom puts him in a bushel basket, places him in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and um, takes Moses in. And then Moses grows up 40 years in the opulence of living as Pharaoh's son. So Pharaoh had been considered God, okay? So not just a ruler. He is God. He is bigger, literally, bigger than life. And Moses then goes from going to be killed to 40 years living at, with anything at his disposal. He would have had the best training, the best opportunities, the best fun. 40 years. We get 10 verses. That's all we get. The next 40 years of his life is chronicled in 15 verses. Here we find... That he has come to grips at some point with his identity that he is actually a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. And so now his worlds are crashing together and he has been probably overseeing people who have overseen and overseeing other people that are overseeing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Hebrew slaves under Egyptian rule. And his worlds come crashing together and he's conflicted. And he sees a guard, sees an Egyptian soldier being uh, uh, harsh to a Hebrew. And Moses steps in and he kills the soldier. He didn't just kill the soldier. Then he buries the soldier under the sand to, to, so that it won't be found out and seen. And he thinks all is well. And the next day, or similar, at least in time, then he encounters an interaction between two Hebrews arguing with one another. And he tries to step in and says, come on, guys, you are brothers. You are brothers. You should not be acting this way towards one another. And one of them says, are oh, you going to kill one of us like you did that Egyptian soldier? And he goes, uh-oh. And he packs up what he can and he leaves. He leaves, and he ends up working for his father-in-law, tending sheep. That's the next 40 years. We get 15 verses. Then he encounters God, let's say on his 80th birthday. And in Exodus chapter 3, it begins by him having an encounter with God. And here's what's amazing to me. We get 25 verses about 80 years of Moses' life. Then we get 4,272 verses and 135 chapters. And the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, four books, that chronicles his last 40 years. All right, so here's what I want you to remember, that there is a lot of life left on the other side of forgotten. There's a lot of life left on the other side of being forgotten. So here's how Exodus 3 begins. Marking Moses' 80th 80, 80 or 81st year. It says, Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's important. Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, "I will." Moses thought, "I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up." When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, "Moses, Moses!" And Moses says, "Here I am." This is Moses' day seventeen. This is his day seventeen. Moses thought he was wandering in the desert, but God was leading. Moses describes it, or it's being described as the backside of the desert, but how does God describe it? Horeb, the mountain of God. That's significant. Moses doesn't know he's at the mountain of God. He just thinks he's on the backside of the desert tending sheep for his father-in-law. But he's at the the mountain of God. So, so when, when the Lord saw he had gone over to look, it says then that, that he spoke and he called his name out. And I've, this, is, this, is, this has occurred to me multiple times working through this passage of scripture. One, it took a firing bush to get Moses probably to pick his head up. That makes sense to you? That it took something like that to get his attention because he's on the back half of this 80 years just looking over what was and what is. And I guarantee you, On his 40th birthday, he didn't expect to be where he was spending his 80th birthday. Looking at all that had gone on, and he's not where he thought he would be. And God did something that would get his attention, but the only thing that opened God's mouth was Moses' movement. When Moses moved and got to the bush, God spoke. Now, I've used this quote with you many times, but um, most of us are educated well past our level of obedience with God. Most of us have more word inside of us than we have obedience to the word we know. I would add to that that most of us probably have enough more knowledge than we have movement. See, we can speak about Christianity as a faith, and that is what it is. It is a faith. But Christianity is a faith movement. My exercise of faith is not in what I believe, it's in what I do. Doing is what marks what a true belief is. One is opinion. One is an action. And so our movement, our movement, it it engages, it engages God and this is what we see with Moses. This, this movement engages God. Here I am when he calls out Moses, Moses. So so then the Lord says, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy crowned. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. All right, the ground was holy. It's always going to be holy in the presence of God. Where we are, where the presence of God is, is always going to be holy. But I think this is kind of a double ring here. It was holy because it was the mountain of God. That's how God describes it. Horeb, the mountain of God. It was holy because his presence was there, but it was holy because his presence had always been there. So how do you know if it's God talking to you in a burning bush? This is almost an aside to the message. I've taught you this before, but I want to remind you. How do you know that that's God? Well, first of all, bushes don't burn and not burn up. So I'm, I'm hoping that when we come into our own scenarios, we, we, we might question what we're seeing. So here's what you know when you hear the voices in your head. First, content. The first giveaway that if it's God is the content. God isn't going to tell you to do or think anything contrary to what, the God, what God has already spoken in his word. Right? So he's not going to tell you to cheat on your taxes. He's not going to tell you to cheat your partner. He's not going to tell you to leave your spouse. He's not going to There's a lot of things he's not going to tell you to do. And what you think you hear, if it, it kind of comes underneath that context where it's contrary to the word of God, then that is the wrong voice. Okay? So we can tell the voice by content. The second way we can tell the, 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 the voice is by tone. By tone. The shepherd has a tone that's gentle even though it's truthful. The truth still punches you in the face, doesn't it? When you, when, you know, when you know you're doing something you ought not do and someone points it out to you, it hurts. It hurts. There's a little bit of embarrassment in that, right? But, so it's not that he won't speak the truth, but when he speaks the truth to us, when he speaks it and we hear it, it won't be this, um, this harsh, he has just punched us in the face. Although we're gonna feel gut punched maybe because it's the truth, but it's the tone. It's not a shameful condemning tone. It's a grace-filled kind tone that wants to pull us toward him. And I'll add a third. I only put two up there. Um, But movement. What movement is he asking for you to do? All right. So that's a little bit with content. Is there movement? And where is that movement going to take you? Is it leading leading you towards the Lord and the kingdom or away from it? So here's verse 7. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. So that tells you that no no one's forgotten because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and then bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. That's always great biblical language for for freedom, when God can bring you into this spacious land. He's bringing you into freedom. He says, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, we can make fun of that because of all the ites. Um, But basically, he's giving a very visual lesson to Moses. Moses would have known this land. So it's almost like God is laying out a map and saying, Israel is confined to this space and they're slaves. And yet, I'm bringing them into this map. Okay? So it would have been a very visual thing for Moses there. And he says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God heard, God heard the cries of the Hebrews and he also heard the cry of Moses. I got to believe Moses on the backside of the desert is doing his fair share of crying. And then God puts these two pieces together. I'm going to deliver them through you. I said this to the worship team before the first service. And so this is kind of a a flip of this in some some regard. Is that God God wants to do something in you and he wants to do something with you. To the team, I said, it's, it's easy when you're serving that you want God to do something with you. But God isn't interested in just doing something with you. He wants to do something in you. These are combined things with and in. And he wanted to do something in Moses and he wanted to do something with Moses. All right? Although all the back and forth between Moses and God was all about how um, lost Moses felt, how little Moses felt, how that 40 years had beaten all of Moses out of him. Right? Because for 40 years, I would say he was full of it. You don't grow up in the palace of Pharaoh and have everything at your disposal and not be full of yourself. And it took 40 years to get all of Moses out of himself so that God could fill himself. We, we, we think we're at the end of our rope when it actually, this is where God is beginning his greatest work in us. He will let us do anything we want to do, I guess. He's not going to step in all the time and change it, but we can only get as far as we can take ourselves. He continues to want to empty us so that he can fill us because this is how he can do stuff in us and with us and Moses was at the end of himself and that was the place where God would can begin to put stuff in him. Um, Listen, when we give into forgotten, we give into a diminished identity and purpose. Diminished identities sit on rocks and pout. Restored identities grab a hold of hope with both hands and move forward. Now, I'm not making fun of the pouting. I've done my fair share of pouting, okay? But when we are pouting, our heads are down. And we're paying more attention to the lack in us than we are in the fullness of God. Um, It's become, I don't know if it's a major league trend, but I know it's um, with the Atlanta Braves, if you've been following any of their historic season. Um, they have an expression that they show whenever they get on base. A lot of them do. And, and, and they'll get to the particular base after hit, and they'll, they'll do this. And they only do it for a minute. And they're doing it to their dugout, but they'll do this. What they're saying is the opposition in this case was too small. Too small. Little gesture to team too small. Too small. The, the enemy wants us to feel. Too small. He wants to take every opportunity he can with us to say, you're too small. The best way i found to combat that is to agree with him. Yep, I'm too small. But it is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Yeah. All right? So there is one man that turns to him and says, too small. The cross, that's all you got? Too small. The tomb, that's all you got? Too small. I know the impact of when you feel too small. And if you sit in that, and you sit in that too long, you're going to miss that God's saying, hey, we ain't too small. You may be too small right now, but we ain't too small. God didn't see Moses and say, buck up, champ. You got more in you than you think. That's not what he said. That's popular philosophy. Come on, you got it inside of you. I don't know. You might, you might not. But what I do know is there's plenty of times I don't feel like I have it inside of me, but I know who I have, who I have inside of me, and that's the game changer. Not my confidence in myself, but my confidence in him. I, I, I know what he's asking me to do, I know the direction he's pointing me into. I'm going to do it. Not because I feel like I can do this, because this is what he has and is leading me to do. So verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you and this will be, um, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. So, this is one of the things I really, really, really love about how God deals with us and how much he knows us. He could have said, because like, He's God, right? He could have said, I will be with you. Would you get moving? But he's going to tell him, here's how you're going to know that I'm with you. I'll be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain, the mountain of God, Horeb. All right. So, Moses is still skeptical, right? He's still skeptical when you read it. And here's what I want to, here's one of the things I want you to to, to understand. Skepticism and hesitancy take root when we go long seasons of believing the feeling of forgotten. The longer Satan can keep you believing your feelings, the more entrenched the roots of fear and inadequacy become. The longer you live in feeling too small, then his purpose and his identity in you will take will take hits that's going to have to be overcome the longer you sit in those seasons now again i can document for you multiple forgotten seasons in my life disregarded overlooked forgotten plenty i got plenty to draw from but i remember one in particular Um, gateway had launched we were still pretty young and uh I got an email from a gentleman named Ed Stetzer. At the time, Ed Stetzer was, I don't know what the role would have been president or whatever, of the Southern Baptist Missions Board. Uh, Dr. Stetzer is a renowned scholar, pastor, uh, understander of culture. I mean, he is just, it's amazing. I, I could listen to, I could listen to uh, Dr. Stetzer speak all day long. I had met him on multiple occasions, but not in a way in which he would have remembered who I was, right? So I get an email from his office saying, um, Rick Warren is coming into town and he would like to meet about 20 church planters in the area and you're invited to come to this. Rick Warren, known at the time as America's pastor, writes the only book, uh, well, he writes a book that has been published, more copies sold in more languages, that the only book that supersedes the purpose-driven life is the Bible. Pretty good, pretty, pretty good reputation, right? The Bible would be listed number one every year on bestsellers if they counted it. They don't. So he writes this. So I get the email inviting me to spend a whole afternoon with 20 other people in a room with Ed Stetzer and Rick Warren. So what do you think I did? My email back says, I'm not sure you have the right Charlie Weir. <laughs> Told me he might say So the response was not very encouraging. The response was, well, I'll check. (laughs) A couple days later, I get an email from the same office saying, yes, Dr. Stetzer says you're the right Charlie Weir. So my return email said, does Dr. Stetzer understand that Gateway Church is not a Southern Baptist church? If, if he doesn't, then he might want this to actually go to someone in the Southern Baptist movement. The response email I got back was, I'll check. <laughs> Several days later, I get the email back that says, Yes, he knows who you are, and he knows what church is and who you're affiliated with, and you are still invited if you will come. So when I show up at headquarters on that particular day, and then there was a table with name tags on it, um, I show up, and the woman sitting behind the desk. She introduces herself, and I recognize she is the woman that typed out, I'll check. And, um, and she said, and who are you? I said, I'm the guy that you had to really work hard at convincing he was invited. And none of that had to do with the invitation. It had to do with the season I was in. The season I was in was not a season in which I would have believed that someone would have invited me to do something like that. These are real emotions that impact decisions and actions, right? So if you're working off the wrong premise, you're going to get the wrong action. If you're working off the right premise, then you can have the right actions. That's why this stuff is so important, Um, So the first time um, that Moses is introduced to Mount Horeb is in this exchange. The next time we hear Mount Horeb being mentioned, it is the rock in which he strikes that water comes up for a released group of Hebrew slaves that thought we're going to die in this wilderness. And yet at that time, Moses finds himself at Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb is struck and water comes out and enough water, what, million or so people? That's not like a, a cup of water. The next time we get introduced to Mount Horeb, Moses is ascending the mountain to have a face-to-face with God to receive the Ten Commandments in this covenant and they're going to leave from that mountain to enter Canaan. Listen, Moses thought he was on the backside of a desert in a forgotten place and it was not a forgotten place. And it wasn't just because God tracked him down. It's because God was there. It was his mountain. Now Moses didn't know it was a mountain. But God knew it was a mountain. Moses thought he was wandering around. God knew he wasn't wandering around. He was at that place. So here's some things to take away from this. Um, That place had always been a place of presence. It had always been a place of hope. It just that Moses wasn't familiar with that place. All right, so... God transforms forgotten places into sacred places, spaces. God can, can transform forgotten places into sacred spaces just because you, you, um, well, let's see, you have never been alone or forgotten. And while the place you are in is unfamiliar to you, it is not unfamiliar to God. Two, God doesn't have to change your place to change your status. If I get here, if I get this, if this happens, if that happens, if this falls in place, no, 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 no. He doesn't have to change your place to change your status. He changes us. He engages us. And there's a whole lot more of life after that spot than there was leading up to that spot. Will you believe it? Will you see the bush? Will you listen to the voice? Will you move when the voice speaks to you? Come on up, team. And the last is just the simple, that forgotten is a delusion. The emotions are real. The state is not. Listen to Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's describing salvation. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and for my sake I could say in which we now anchor. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The confident expectation of God's presence. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance then produces character and character then produces hope so hope you tracking it hope flows out of character character is developed out of perseverance we can't develop perseverance without suffering these these are these are connected this is why i'm telling you it can be learned it can be practiced and it can be transferred because he's giving us this process. And then he says, if, if, if you're worried about where you're going to end up at, end, at the end of that suffering, perseverance, character, and hope. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. We want to avoid suffering. We want to get from point A to point B in the fastest place, least painful place possible. And too many times then we ascribe that to being the goodness of God. And yet this blows all of that up up out of the water. The goodness of God is his presence and what he does with us in this process. And he wants to produce out of you a hopeful, hope-filled person. Because if you can learn it and you can practice it, we can share it. It's not always about us. In most cases with God, it's always going to be about us and others. Both equally important. Us and others. He wants to do with and in you. But if we're sitting around too small, we ain't moving. We ain't moving. Feelings are real. They're just not true. And, and, and again, the prayer coming into today was this would be someone's day 17 that that feeling of forgotten and overlooked and disregarded and disillusioned would break today. Now, you might not see something for 52 more days or whatever, but the hope begins today. What were the two things I wanted to take you to? Hang on to hope in forgotten places. Why? Because forgotten is a delusion. It's not a real place. Second, hope is in front of you. Move towards it. If you can't see it, ask him to set up a flare. With me, he'll speak it and he'll keep circling back around that thing until I get moving. He's not a one and done God. You have not blown your chance. That's where someone's very specific right now. You have not blown your chance with God. You haven't blown it. Well, I'll say this. You might have blew it, yet blown it. Blown speaks to a future. Blue, speak, blue speaks to the moment. Yes, very well. Get in line with the rest of us that miss God in that moment. Just all, let all line up. We miss God in the moment. The line will stretch across around this building. That's not, that doesn't have to be the defining moment. The defining moment is the next moment. The next moment when you move with God. That's the moment. And that's the moment we're in today. If you can forget the blow and get to moving, you will write down somewhere in your journal on your phone today, September 24th, 2023. So here's how we want to, I want to close today. If you need to spend some time with the Lord in movement, And and it just needs to be a personal space with you right now. This side over here, I want you to come this side. This side over here, no one will come pray with you, okay? You can have your moment alone in movement to an altar. This is a place where we lend, borrow, and link faith. But you want someone to pray with you, this is the side of the altar you come to, okay? You come to this side and prayer team, elders, others, pastors will come pray for you over here. Communion is always available on my left or right. That is the refreshing nature of consuming the blood and the body of Christ that makes all of this possible. All right, and then worship as we finish. There's a reason why we end service with not just an amen, we end it in worship. Now you have had the ability to process the spirit over the course of this time. And you, it always requires, or at least it calls for a response. So we can worship, we can come to prayer, we can join hands with someone, we can receive communion. Stand with me as I pray. Father, we're so grateful to what you do, how you do it. I thank you for your directness, your consistency. Um, and I know that you want to heal You want to encourage. You want to change direction. And you want all of us to have the confidence in you, to remove it as a confidence in us and put it in a confidence in you. Do do what only you can do in this moment now, The Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.